Welcome back to Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm David Brown, Pinnacle Associate and Founding Pastor of The Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I'm Rhonda Blevins, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida. So David, are you ready for some courageous conversations? Absolutely. (laughs) Then let's go. It's good to be back for season three of Pastor Life. We have a great season lined up with some outstanding guests who will join us along the way. But before we dive into that, David, I've missed you this summer. I hope you had a wonderful break. I've missed you too, and I've missed the rhythm of us recording these pods together. And I've missed our Pastor Life family. Uh, But I did have a really wonderful summer uh, with a couple of trips and family and seeing extended family. How about you? Yeah, we had a couple of getaways. I even had our annual, you know, church conference. Uh, But now I'm ready to get this exciting season of Pastor Life rolling along. Me too. Me too. Uh, We're calling this season Courageous Conversations. We'll be discussing some of the more pressing issues facing our culture uh, that are also facing the church. These are issues that are sometimes difficult to talk about in our Christian circles. Yeah, for sure. The issues that we'll tackle this season include racism, sexuality, politics, immigration, climate change, and more. Yeah, keeping it light here on the pod. Yeah, right. We also have several bonus episodes lined up this season. In these episodes, we'll explore various models or methods for having these sort of courageous conversations, conversations that will unite people rather than divide. Yeah, we, through our research, have discovered some excellent models. There are some people out there doing some really good work in this area. For sure. And we don't want to reinvent the wheel. So we'll learn from people who are doing this really well. Mm -hmm. But let's shift to what we've dialed up for this first episode, shall we? Yeah. So today, our courageous conversation is all about truth. And we decided that this was an important topic and really uh, the place to begin this entire season. Right. I think as we dive into these conversations, we're doing it in what people have called a post-truth world, a post-modern world, a Mm -hmm. world where everything seems relative or where people seem to have different truths. And so I think our first question is, where do we even begin to have conversations about issues until we deal with this topic, right? Yeah, it's almost like we have to be on the same page before we can begin to have serious conversations about about the issues. So today, uh, someone is going to give us some help with that, and his name is Reverend Dr. Mitch Randall, and Mitch is the CEO of Good Faith Media. Yeah, Good Faith Media offers reflection and resources at the intersection of faith and culture through an inclusive Christian lens. Yeah, they do really good work over at Good Faith Media. And then who better to discuss the concept of truth than the CEO of a media company? Right. He's got some great insight for us. Mitch pastored churches in Kansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. He's a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Yeah, Mitch and his wife, they live in Norman, Oklahoma. 
I think that all of our listeners are going to enjoy this courageous conversation about truth with Mitch Randall. So, Rhonda, years ago, one of my go-to shows on cable uh, TV was the Colbert Report. And I don't know if you ever were a Colbert, Colbert Report fan. You know, I, I would, I would oh, yeah. con- consistently watch The Daily Show and then, and then Colbert. And obviously, you know, he's moved on and he's doing a really great job hosting late night as well. But um, he really first introduced into my vocabulary that word truthiness. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. of course he was really, you know, doing some, some sort of satire and, and playing a role in, in the way that he hosted that, you know, late night talk show. And, um, but, but truthiness, this idea that the truth is squishy or the idea that, uh, you know, we can sort of create or message or market an alternative truth. Mm-hmm. I, I think that was the first time that I started thinking about that and what that could mean for our dialogue and culture. And, and obviously that's playing out. It's playing out in front of our eyes over the last you know decade plus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the uh, phrase alternative facts came uh, through a few years ago. And um, I think when I first heard that phrase, I was just stunned, shocked. Um, what, you know, but that's right. kind of seeped into our churches. I saw a, a political cartoon not too long ago, um, and the cartoon had the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. And there there was a fifth horseman, and the four horsemen were looking at that fifth horseman saying, who are you? And the label on that horseman was disinformation. Wow. Um, I thought wow. that was really powerful that this disinformation is so Oh, insidious in our culture. And how do we as church leaders lead our congregations when um, we're coming from different understandings of what the truth is? Absolutely. And and I think people in our pews are also a part of you know, groups where they get sorted online in terms of Facebook or, you mm-hmm. know, kind of the echo chamber phenomenon yeah. where you know, we're, we're more and more closely connected and listening to voices that pretty much confirm the, the way that we see life in the first place. Um, and, and when you think even a little deeper about social media and you think about the way that posts get rewarded or get bumped to where people see them and they spread, you know, basically the, the more sort of inflammatory or the more wild that a post is, the more likely yeah. it is to go viral. And so even just in the in the architecture of social media, the way that that posts gain traction really kind of feeds into this machine of truthiness or alternative facts or echo chambers. Yeah, sometimes I just want to somehow communicate to my people. Okay, I get that you're on social media, you're watching cable news, and I, you know, as much as I try to convince you not to do so much of that, you're still doing it. <laughs> um, but but look around, right here, right now. These people that you're with in this church, this is real. 
I'm not sure about the other stuff that we're all into out there with media. Right now, right here, this is reality. This is truth. Be here. Let's figure this out together. Yeah. And, you know, isn't that something that kind of ties in with the the body of Christ, uh, ties in with this sense of the church as as an embodied group of people. And, you know, if if, if it can't happen in the church, if we can't overcome some of these divisions because of the bonds we have through Christ, I'm not sure that there's much hope outside of the church for the the larger culture or the larger world. Um, so I, yeah. I really think that's where some of our hope is in this series, in this season three with Courageous Conversations is, you know, if if we can't do this in the church as we sit in pews and sing hymns and songs together and bow our heads and pray and open scripture with one another, if we can't find ways to overcome the cultural divisions or the wedge issues or the echo chambers, you know, I'm not sure that there is much hope for the larger culture. Oh, I I totally agree. Well, our hope today is that uh, Mitch can give us some insight as, you know, he kind of lives and breathes this as a, the, you know, CEO of a media company. And I think um, pastors out there are going to really enjoy uh, hearing from Mitch and gaining insight through him. So with that, let's welcome Mitch Randall to the pod. Well, we're here on the pod today with Mitch Randall from Good Faith Media. Um, Mitch, as we get started, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, the work you find yourself doing these days, what keeps you rolling? Well, David and Rhonda, it is an honor to be with you here today. Uh, just love the podcast. First two seasons were excellent. Looking forward to this third season and uh, just really excited about these controversial conversations that you're about to have. Uh, and when I got the invite to say, hey, we want you to be on the third season about controversial conversation, I thought, well, I don't know really what that means, but okay, I'll, I'll join. <laughs> but uh, it's great to be here today. Yes, I am uh, the CEO of Good Faith Media. Good Faith Media is a merger. Uh, recently between two historic Baptist organizations, the Baptist Center for Ethics, which I was a part of, and Baptist Today, which is based out of Atlanta, Georgia. We came together and joined forces to create Good Faith Media that provides four offerings. We've got a uh, di- our digital news and opinion offering on our website at goodfaithmedia.org. We publish three to four articles regarding social justice issues, faith issues, uh, cultural issues uh, from columnists around the world, literally around the world. We've got paid staff that write. We also have a lot of volunteer contributors around the world that, uh, that just write some excellent articles for us. We also have a publishing house. We've got a journal that goes out six times a year called Nurturing Faith, and it's very well done, put together. There's a Bible study written by Dr. Tony Cartledge out of Campbell Divinity School, who uh, just does an excellent job following the lectionary and uh, got over got several thousand of subscribers uh, to that Bible study curriculum. So that's part of Nurturing Faith Journal. And then we have a book publishing arm under the Nurturing Faith brand. We publish over 120 books that you can 
cruise and purchase on our website. And uh, just a, a great, uh, a great uh, product to be able to provide to our supporters. Then we've got our media division. Uh, that's led by Cliff Vaughn out of Nashville, Tennessee. We produce uh, podcasts ourselves. We have a myriad of podcasts under the Good Faith Media brand. In fact, we're about to launch a Good Faith Media podcast network here in the fall that we're really excited about. And uh, and then also we got our video productions that we put together. We've got full feature documentaries. We've got short feature documentaries. And then we got one-offs where we go around the country and interview folks and uh, just sit down with one-on-one talking about important issues. And then our final offering, which has really nothing to do with media. In fact, we want to encourage people to unplug from media. It's called Our Experiences. One of our employees uh, who oversees our book publishing arm also sees Our Experience arm, and that is Dr. Bruce Gorley. He lives in Bozeman, Montana. So we take groups up to Yellowstone National Park, Glacier National Park, Yosemite, and some other national parks across the country just really letting them get away and uh, to, to lean on us, let us take care of everything that week and just really just relax, get to know the group, and then also just to think about their faith and uh, their place in the world. But uh, there's no cell reception up there, so it's fantastic. Oh, that sounds awesome. Sign me up. <laughs> I need to find Absolutely. out about that. Sign up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, the, the name of your organization, Good Faith Media, is, is interesting to me. And, I, you know, maybe there's a story there how you got to that. But I, I do wonder, in this age of the loss of faith in media, and not just media, but, uh, you know, institutions, uh, expertise all the way around. Um, I, I wonder if did that play into the naming of Good Faith Media and, and how does that work together? Rhonda, great question. 100% yes. Uh, <laughs> Good Faith Media kind of has a, a dual meeting. One is we as an organization, uh, in fact, both organizations prior to the launch of Good Faith Media last year, have been fighting fundamentalism and these ideas that we believe pervert the gospel and 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 promote a gospel that is contrary to our conscience and to our understanding and how we interpret and apply scripture. And so when we talk about good faith, we think about a faith that is based in the grace and love inclusivity of God that is always striving for hope. So that's one meaning of good faith. But the other one is this genuine, sincere effort to discover truth and that we're not trying to manipulate we totally understand that we're human. There are times when we get it wrong. When we do, we apologize. We accept criticism and we try to write that criticism, but we are going out in good faith in an attempt to search for truth and to glean the truths of this world and apply them to our lives. Yeah, it seems like when you talk about that and this sort of quest for truth and an honest uh, approach to um, the stories that you tell or the messages that you're putting out there. Uh, how do you feel like that plays? It, I, I know there is an audience for that. Uh, maybe there's an audience for that within people who are kind of already committed to the church, uh, particularly committed to more uh, inclusive versions of the church. Uh, do you see your audience as larger than that or do you see it as targeted? And and how does that play into the, the sorts of messages and stories that you want to put out into the world? We are very much committed to a larger conversation and uh, we are very committed to ecumenical work. Uh, we 
are historically a Baptist organization, but we are trying to break through that mold, reaching out to other Christian traditions uh, to learn from them, to invite them on this quest as we all pursue this, uh, this quest for truth. And we also are reaching out to other faith traditions. I'll give you an example. One of my best friends in the world is here in Oklahoma City. I live in Norman, Oklahoma, and he is the imam here in Oklahoma City, Imam Imad and Chauncey. He contributes to us. We've got a great little short documentary called Mercy about his life. He is a wonderful human being. You can't meet anybody better than him. But he and I differ, obviously. He comes from a Muslim background. I come from a Christian background. We understand faith differently. We apply scriptures as we tend to believe differently. But one of the things that we're both committed to is friendship and relationship. And we have a genuine likeness and love for one another. We respect one another, but we're always constantly pursuing this this thread of truth that is woven within our common humanity. And while he comes from a Muslim background and a Muslim perspective, I come from a Christian perspective, even more specifically, a Baptist Christian perspective. It does not mean that we have to be enemies. It does not mean that we have to win an argument. It only means that we respect our backgrounds, respect our perspectives, and move forward to try to find ways that we can understand and apply truth because it's just too important not to do so. We all live in the same world. We've got to figure out not only how to get along, but how to thrive with one another and respect differences and respect the the truths that we come to in this world of ours. I'm reminded of the line in scripture from Pontius Pilate, who said uh, to a group of people gathered around as they were trying Jesus, and um, he said, what is truth? And you know, he was onto something with that question, I think, because that's the question of the ages. And maybe the question kind of ebbs and flows, and right now we're in a real critical juncture in our society where it's really hard to find the answer to that. Who do we trust? How do we find truth? And, you know, our audience is pastors and clergy. And how do we lead people when the understanding of what truth is can be so disparate, not only between, you know, churches, but even people in in the same pew? Mm -hmm. What an excellent question. And I just want you to know, this episode of, uh, of the podcast really inspired me to look at that text again. So I just finished uh, looking at it and writing about it. And you talk about Pilate. I mean, you almost have this sympathy for Pilate and the predicament that he finds himself in. He's got the Jewish leaders telling him one thing. He brings Jesus in and questions him, really doesn't see anything that he has done, tries to find a way that he can charge him with treason. But he really is at a loss. And so he understands that his biggest truth for Pilate is Pax Romana, keeping the peace. And so that is what he's more interested in than anything. But that question, what is truth? And the word that he uses there, Athenia, is this moral compass, this moral guidance of ours to, to try to figure out the right direction to live or the right dis- direction to make decisions in our life. And one of the things, Rhonda and David, I think that is a little bit of a misconception that we, we need to understand truth and facts 
in their own definition because facts are something that are concrete. Facts are something that we can observe. And then once we observed, there is a common understanding that this is what it is. In other words, if we were to look out my window right now and three of us looked at this big oak tree, I hope that all three of us would say, yeah, that's an oak tree. Now, we may describe it differently because of our backgrounds and our makeup, but that's our truth. But the fact is, it's still a tree. And so as we pursue truth, as we look towards trying to find something to guide us, and for us as Christians, we believe Jesus is that truth, and we follow that truth. But the problem that we're seeing today is that there is a large segment of society that is gaslighting us, attempting to convince us that when I look out this window, what I'm seeing is not a tree. It's a shrub. There is a tinge of truth to that, but the reality is it's still a tree as far as everyone else is consider, you know, considers it. But they're trying, they have convinced themselves that it's a shrub, and they're trying now to convince us that it's a shrub. And the reality is that is the dilemma we're finding ourselves in. It's like we've lost all reason because we have decided that facts are no longer facts. I think probably the the term that uh, has probably put this into motion more than anything is the term alternative facts. It, It started with fake news, but this idea that there can be an alternative fact, that's not true. There can be, and I will concede that there could be alternative truths from one's perspective, but there is no such thing as an alternative fact. Facts are facts. And the quicker we can understand that, the quicker we can all come to an agreement using our mind that God created us and our reason that God gave us to define these and understand them as facts. And then once we agree on that, then we can talk about perspective and talk about diversity and differing of opinions as we all strive out to seek truth in our lives. So I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, that was me pontificating. Yeah, it seems like that that's the the huge gap, right, is between the people who look out the window and see the tree and those that see the shrub. And if 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 there's not a way to get to a place where we're both considering the same set of facts, you know, uh, right. it, it seems like that's the first big gap. And it, it seems like we live in an age where media really plays into those distinctions or differences. Uh, maybe uh, plays into those echo chambers where people who are shrub people um, get together and and uh, y- you know collaborate one another's own facts, and then uh, the people who are tree people are in a, in, a, in another chamber and and doing their own thing. And so I, I wonder, you know, first of all, if if you've got a take on how that is different in any sort of way from the role that media you know played in our culture a generation or two ago. Uh, and, and then maybe the second part of the question is, is there a, a way or maybe some ways that media um, can push back against? Uh, I, I feel like that's maybe a part of what you're doing at Good Faith Media is, is pushing back or trying to break through some of those echo chambers. David, that's an excellent analysis. And let me just begin by saying this. I've always said historically, the best and worst thing for Christianity is when Constantine was converted to Christianity. It was great because it put it on a Christianity on the map. It was terrible because it became a state religion. So <laughs> it was both a blessing and a curse. 
As far as media is concerned, I would say the creation of the 24-hour news cycle was both a blessing and a curse. It is amazing to me that we can know things that are happening across the globe in an instant. And we can have breaking news immediately. I mean, following the news out of Afghanistan this week, I mean, we can see what's going on on the ground right now in real time. I mean, that is incredible. It really is incredible. At the same time, 24-hour news cycles are driven by ratings that are driven by sponsorships. In other words, follow the money. And so a lot of this is trying to get audiences and the way to get on audiences is sensational journalism that is either pushing the envelope or creating a stir in their audience so that they will continue to watch. It's like an, it's almost like an addict and it doesn't matter what new service it is. It doesn't matter if it's Fox or MSNBC. It's this tapping into this addictive personality that we have. And you always have to push that. You've got to give them a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until it crosses a line and just begins to distort fact in a pursuit for truth. Well, what we're trying to do at Good Faith Media is to begin with the premise that we are all in this together in an attempt to discover truth. We do agree on factual evidence, but at the same time, we also understand that we perceive those facts from different points of view, whether that's a Christian view, a Jew, a Jewish view, a Muslim view uh, within Christianity. There are different groups, even within Baptists. I mean, my goodness, there's so many Baptists for perspectives. And so we will write stuff. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've written a column. I've got one uh, ever, that's published every Thursday and we get pushback on it. And what's fascinating to me when we get pushback, I'll say, well, why don't you write s- something that contradicts what I wrote? I'm fine with that. I mean, this is part of the conversation. This is part of us working together to find out what is truth. It's not necessarily a debate as much as a conversation pursuing a better future. And if we can if we can come to this conversation in that spirit and that attitude, I think it's a lot more productive and constructive moving forward. So what we're trying to do is to bring to light and address some of the most controversial subjects that the church is facing this day and people of faith are facing this day, but do it in an honest way with integrity and kindness. And I want to stress that last word, kindness, (laughs) because a lot of what you hear today in the rhetoric that is published and produced is not kind. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, and, you know, I love the idea that you you seek to do it with kindness. And one of the, let me just tell you an anecdotal story here, Mitch. I, you know, as a pastor, I try to encourage my people to limit how much of those 24-hour news shows that they watch. Some of them watched all day, every day, and it's just not healthy. Um, and so I remember I, I preached one sermon where I suggested that instead of watching all of their news because it's so sensationalized that they read more of their news, And uh, a few people got a little upset with me because they thought I was recommending the local paper, which some of them determine is is too, you know, liberal. And um, and and so let me ask you the question: With that, is you know, is that a what is that an accurate assessment? Um, Is it perhaps less sensational to read news if it's from a reputable source than to watch the news and the images um, and the punditry and and all that? 
Yeah, when you engage news, and this is on any topic really, when you engage uh, material in its written form, you are forced to use your imagination. You are forced to read the words of the author and then interpret those words and then try to glean some sense of what you're, you're reading. And then you filter that through your own experiences, through your own knowledge, and then a level of determination in what you read. And, and it's just a different process when you're watching it on television or when you're listening to talk radio, you're basically being told it's being interpreted for you and you're being told how to think about this. And it's an entirely different engagement than when you sit down with a newspaper or a magazine and have to read through it. There's the author does try to paint this for you. And and I don't want to say that they're totally objective, uh, but, but you are, you are forced to put your own, interpretation on it and your own uh, application to the text that you're reading. But a lot of times with uh, video and audio news that we consume, we're being told exactly what we are looking at, even if it's not exactly what we're looking at. (laughs) I think it's interesting as we, as pastors and Christians, try to engage some of the courageous conversations that we might uh, find disagreement over in the pews there's such a tendency for us in the church to uh, divide down that middle aisle like so many other parts of culture do um, and to, to, to find ourselves sitting in pews, but to, to be on opposite sides of issues and to be pretty entrenched in those dualistic uh, or, or, or dichotomy kind of positions. You know, you've got to be this, you've got to be that uh, one or the other. And that that sort of conversation ends up getting shut down before it even, even really starts. And I think that the church has such a opportunity as an embodied community. Uh, if we were to take that approach, that is searching for truth, open to conversation, humble, kind. You know, what are the things that 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 when you think of the embodied community of the church, what are the qualities that we ought to be bringing? to these difficult conversations or, or what, what are the ground rules that we ought to be laying as we get into difficult conversations? Wow. That is a very important question that you just posed, David. Um, let me begin with this. In this world that we live in with digital media, digital content, and hyper-partisanism, if that's a word, I may have just coined one. That it's a word now. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, we have lost our humanity. I mean, it's easy to get on social media and rail. It's easy to be on a media or news show and rail at your opponent and create and create this other that may or may not exist. It's really easy to do that because when we do that, we dehumanize everybody else around us, including ourselves. So congregationally, one of the things I did over 20 years of pastorate uh, in Kansas, Texas, and Oklahoma, when we would sit down in a room and begin to talk about controversial subjects, I'd always start out the conversation with reminding everybody that we're a church family. 
reminding uh, uh, reminding everyone that we have this common humanity that all of us share. I am a fa- I'm a husband. I'm a father. You're a husband. You're a father. You're a wife. You're a mother. You're a daughter. We are hu- we are flesh and blood. And so let us start with that very basic reality. Or I could put it this way: Let's start with that fact. <laughs> we agree that we are all human. You know, hopefully, if you're in a church family, you agree that you're part of an organization that you are connected with. You love the the values and the mission of the church, the theology of the church, the missiology of the church. We're all supportive of this idea of church. So we begin with that agreement and say, we also are going to understand that we're going to have differing perspectives on this controversial issue. Let's be respectful of that. Let's uh, honor that. And let's be open-minded to think that, you know, somebody on the other side of this issue may have a point that I haven't heard about, and I might learn something. I might even have my mind persuaded uh, in another direction. That's who we are as human beings. We're constantly learning. We're constantly trying to make ourselves better and understand in the Christian context, scripture better and make ourselves more and more in the likeness of Christ. None of us have achieved that. So let's understand that first and begin that conversation in that type of atmosphere, in agreement. And hopefully what will happen is that consensus will begin to emerge. Even if we don't agree, we may find consensus in a way to move forward. The worst thing that churches have done, in my opinion, have adopted the essence of democratic rule, but more, more importantly, the vote. I hate votes in a church because there's always a winner and there's always a loser. What if we did away with that and began to to talk about consensus and this pursuit of truth, understanding, defining the facts as they are, and then working together to pursue truth, understanding none of us are going to get our way necessarily, but we are committed as community to move forward, searching for truth and applying that truth, even within these controversial issues. I love that humble approach, and um, just listening to you talk like that makes me think, ah, I can relax. I don't have to defend my position, you know? Um, Well, well, Rhonda, as you well know, it's easier said on a podcast than it is. (laughs) No doubt. I am a shrub person, by the way, if that's a problem for you. Let's talk about it. well, David was talking about that the, the church has a real opportunity in this moment. And one of the ways I've framed it as I've talked with people in my own church is we're attempting to figure out a way to have some of these conversations is, you know, with, with the dualism, you know, with the disparity in our culture, um, if, if the church can't figure this out, then I don't have a lot of hope for the rest of the nation, right? And so, as church leaders, as pastors, you know, what tools do we have in our pastoral toolbox? I don't think they taught me this in seminary. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I slept through that class. But what tools do we have in our pastoral toolbox to help us lead our people to make sense of this very confusing sort of media truth landscape that we find ourselves in? And and maybe, you know, the first question is, where do we even begin that conversation? Right. 
Well, first, let me say, I have a huge heart for pastors. I was one for over two decades. Uh, still feel like you know, that's part of my calling as a minister. Um, I can't imagine what it's like pastoring a church over the last several years. Uh, with the hyper-partisanship here in America, with the division that we find ourselves theologically, and then with the racial issues that emerged in the last couple of years, and then throw on top of that a global pandemic that is like we've never seen before. I, can't I suddenly imagine. feel tired. Do you feel tired, David? <laughs> yeah, your, your whole attitude changed from one question to the next, right, Rhonda? <laughs> right. Uh, but I just, I've got such a respect for our clergy and the hard work that they have to do. And, you know, we've been seeing it. I know that you've been hearing about it. A lot of clergy are burning out uh, and leaving the ministry uh, altogether because of, of what they've had to experience. So I just want to first say thank you to the clergy for everything that they've been doing over the last several years. We know it's a very difficult job. Keep it up. We need you and we're inspired by you. The tools. I do think that we need to be, and again, I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to give you an answer, but it's not an answer because we find ourselves in this, this pandemic. And that is the lack of face-to-face conversations. Um, you know, digital media, social media has put in place now the practice of yelling at one another. And because we can't see somebody, you know, we can't see somebody on a screen, um, we just see words, we can, we can treat them as the other, we can treat them as non-human and it doesn't make us feel, doesn't feel bad. But if we were to ever recapture the ability to get in a room with one another, to see someone eye to eye, that's an entirely different conversation. And again, you begin that conversation in humility, understanding the commonalities that you have as humans and as people of faith and understanding at the end of the day, the most important thing is to maintain a relationship with that person and understand we may see things differently. But the best and healthiest way to do that is face-to-face. And the problem that we're facing today is this doggone pandemic has given, has basically told us we can't do that. You know, And I think that played a big part in uh, the conversation and the strife, especially within local congregations dealing with racial justice. We could not have those conversations face-to-face. A lot of that happened over uh, social media and people getting outraged by it when they when one side would say something, the other side would say other thing. If we could just get in a room and talk about it and be honest with one another, I think we could go a long ways. But right now, the pandemic has has blocked us from doing that. But I do think that there is a tool there. I do think you begin with humility. You understand that you're not perfect. Um, the problem is there's a lot of people in the world right now that think they're perfect and think they know everything. Uh, and they're pretty convinced that uh, they have solidified truth as they see it. I've never done that. I've always been a pursuer of truth because I'm a fallible being and I've always left the door open for myself to learn something because I think that that's always a possibility. That's how we grow as a Christian, as human beings. You know, I think back to Rhonda asking the question about Pilate's words with Jesus and the fact that those had come to your mind and that you'd been writing on that recently. Um, if I'm remembering that story right, uh, when Pilate asked the question, it, it just sort of, 
ends up hanging there. Uh, and, and the, and the story sort of, sort of moves on without a clear answer. And uh, I wonder if rhetorically that was sort of a tool for inviting the listener uh, to John's gospel into the conversation, you know, leaving space for us to wrestle with uh, a question that doesn't have a, a particularly clear or obvious answer. And uh, perhaps not in Jesus's time, perhaps not in our time. And um, so, so I really like the way that this conversation has framed what we can do to help get that sort of conversation going. Uh, how, how do we provide some parameters for difficult conversations and seeking truth together uh, as people who are committed to Jesus, uh, people who are committed to the church, that we do have some of that common ground. And uh, so how do we build off of that? And, and how, do we, how do we grow together into the answers to some of these complicated and, and, and difficult questions? And I, as I think about the times that I've had the chance to be a part of those conversations, that that face to face and uh, ha- having a a person that's sitting across from you and and being invested in learning from them, hearing their story, uh, I, I think whenever people who approach something differently are are sort of invited into the table. And those conversations happen. And, and then maybe as pastors, one of the things we can do is to, to sort of hold up those stories that, that, or those perspectives that might be in tension with one another uh, around the table. And so I, I guess when I think about that and when I think about some of the at least marginally productive conversations that have happened in, in places where I've served, uh, I'm at least somewhat hopeful on this. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what signs of hope you might uh, want to call out or point out um, places where you see this working, um, or, or maybe just hope that you have that that we can do this as pastors in conversations when it comes to 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 really you know being a voice uh, uh, or or a model for seeking truth in in a world that you know may not do that very well. David, that's an excellent point. And the one thing I think is extremely important in this conversation is that the power of narrative that you just mentioned, Jesus was on to something. How he taught truth was primarily through telling narratives. Very few times does he try to make a, um, a systematic argument uh, for a certain belief or cause he makes some generalized statements that are beautiful statements in the Sermon on the Mount, but when he would talk about truth and he would try to persuade people to think about these issues in a different way, in a different light, he often told stories. He told parables. And there's one thing about telling a story that is leaps and bounds better, in my opinion, than entering into a debate. And then that is, it's hard to argue with a personal narrative because it's that person's personal narrative. It's what they experienced. And when you hear those stories and you hear how somebody got through a very difficult time, you are inspired, but you're also challenged to think, you know, I didn't really 
I didn't really see that as a, as an issue or as that that as a problem because I had always been told another narrative. And so now I've got two narratives and how do I reconcile those two? And it helped shape me and form me a little bit better. I'm going to go back to my good friend, Imad and Chauncey. I was invited by him to go over to Beirut, Lebanon, where he is from. He grew up in Lebanon. He's a Palestinian refugee. And we uh, documented his life story, which is remarkable. His dad fled Palestine for Lebanon uh, after 47 and set up a little shop there uh, in downtown Lebanon in the camps. And he grew up there. And to hear his story and then to hear that moment, this pivotal moment in his life where he survived what's called the Shabbat massacres, where Maronite Christians went into the camps and slaughtered, slaughtered Muslims. And he hid for three days. Now, if that narrative were to play out in Hollywood, then Imad would have become a radicalized Islamic terrorist. He doesn't. You don't want to know why? Because when he was a little boy, his dad, who had a little fruit stand, sent him to a little Catholic school across the street, a little Muslim boy, <laughs> going to this Catholic school. And there was this little nun there whose name was Mercy. And she gave him sweets and laughed with him and loved him. If you were to come to Oklahoma City today and you were to look at every Islamic social services in the city, it's called mercy. (laughs) So you take that story and you hear this man's life and as a Palestinian refugee growing up in Beirut and to see you know, what, how he reacted to some very strenuous and controversial issues. I mean, he said, I can remember walking down the street and seeing Yasser Arafat commonly. And this <laughs> is just, it was his way of life. But he chose a way of peace and a way of justice and a way that many could not comprehend. But when you hear that story, boy, it goes, you know, it goes contrary to what, you know, main mainstream media often tells about Muslims and refugees. It's, it's just, and so the power of the narrative is essential. It's going to be an essential part of the future. Here's the good news. The emerging generation, they're all on board with this. They get it. Uh, when we saw, uh, we saw the gun violence down in Florida. I can remember watching the march on Washington all across the country as these young people stood up uh, to demand justice against gun violence in their schools. But what was interesting to me, uh, the students that were down in Florida, when they organized this event, they wanted to make certain that they were not the, the highlight of this march because they acknowledged their, their white privilege. And they said, we're going to bring students from the south side of Chicago. We're going to bring students from East L.A. We're going to bring students to the forefront who are all suffering under this, this, uh, um, who are suffering under this pandemic of gun violence. And we're going to make certain that their stories are heard alongside ours. I'm telling you. The emerging generations get it. If we want to have hope for this world, let's look towards them and let's let them lead. Yeah, that's a that's a really hopeful word. 
Well, um, later on in this season of Pastor Life Podcast, we're going to be doing some of our episodes are going to be about models that pastors and church leaders can explore to bring people together face-to-face and having some of these important conversations and kind of ways to do that. Other episodes are going to be more topical, like this one about truth. With that, I want to say thank you so much to Mitch for being with us today and, and lending us some really good, hopeful words about how we can navigate these uh, post-truth kind of pastoral leadership waters. So thank you so much, Mitch. Well, Rhonda, David, it was a joy uh, to be with you today. And just thank you for all that you're doing. Again, uh, anything that we can do to help pastors, give them tools uh, for their ministries, I'm all for it. And that's exactly what you're doing. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, And I just have one final word. Make shrubs great again. <laughs> well, you, it's just a little like manure that. on those shrubs. Uh, they feel really nice. We'll have to decide if that gets edited out or not, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are so glad to have you back and joining us for episode one of season three of Pastor Life. The one in which Rhonda thinks that trees are shrubs. <laughs> well, I have my own news sources. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Kidding, of course. Uh, So our next episode will be one of the bonus episodes that we mentioned in which we'll discover the first of several models or methods that we're going to be exploring that churches might employ to hold these courageous conversations. Right, and our guest will be Reverend Elizabeth Hagen, pastor and author. Her most recent book is entitled Brave Church, Tackling Tough Topics Together. Seems very appropriate for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Elizabeth will tell us about how she led her church through some challenging conversations, and she'll help us discover how other pastors can do the same. Thanks for being with us today. And as always, you can learn more about Pastor Life or Pinnacle Leadership Associates at penlead.com. Spell it. (laughs) P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com. Thank you. Awesome. So, David, did I tell you that I spent the whole summer shopping for shrubs? Um, no, you didn't. Boy, I am bushed. Ah, (laughs) Terrible. Terrible, terrible. Sorry, sorry.